0: All right, welcome back to Ginnemai. Get these notes going. Tonight we take another side study into what is actually part two of the anatomy of humanity as I uh, am presenting it. it. It will probably not be part two in the future when I present it, it'll just be a different part. Uh, 3, 4, 20, whatever we want to get, however deep this goes, I, I didn't intend ever to progress the anatomy of humanity beyond the trichotomous nature that God designed us with being a body, soul, and a spirit, but it's become quite evident to me that the anatomy of humanity according to scripture is far deeper than I first anticipated it to be. So tonight we're going to look a little bit at the operational framework of humanity, which is a part of the anatomy of humanity, Um, so we'll get to that. But before we begin with our side study, um, that's not the right slide, there we go. Before we get into the second part of the anatomy of humanity, we need to identify our own fellowship relationship with God uh, by examining our actions and whether they are sinful or not, um, or examining our heart and whether it is in agreement with God's or not, And if need be, we need to restore proper fellowship to God through confession alone, to God alone. So at this time, take a brief moment to utilize the priesthood that God gave you through your dependency upon Jesus of Nazareth to be your Messiah, confessing any known sin and rebellion, which may be at this time dirtying your feet, therefore restoring fellowship with the God of the universe. I'll give us about 30 seconds, and I'll open in prayer too. Father, you know our hearts, and whether they are in agreement with you, you know our actions and the places that we have walked and the dirt that is upon our feet. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins and agree with you on the sin that we've committed, that you restore us to a proper relationship with you. Help us not to be afraid of you casting back our confession into our teeth, but in a spiteful manner, but to realize that you love us and desire us to be in a relationship with you, and that means that we cannot have sin within our life at the time that we are trying to work with you towards the work that you've created us to do in establishing your kingdom and glorifying you. Father, thank you for this evening and for the work that has been done to get here and the rest um, of the group that is here, and please be with those who are not here, that they would find the rest they need in you and be encouraged through the different work and the different homeworks that they're doing. Uh, may they be able to see and glorify you through their actions and in their night as well as we get to uh, take the moment ourselves to study the the word that you've given us so that we can understand more about you. Thank you for this evening and for the safety in getting here. Please guide us through the study and teach us through your Holy Spirit, convicting us of evading sin, and encouraging us to restore fellowship as need be. May we explore these different studies in different areas within The framework of dependency upon you in the relationship you've designed us to live in in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, it's necessary for us in this side study regarding the operational framework of humanity to identify a couple of things here. First off, this isn't an abstract concept of uh, like anthropology or a civilization's concept. It's not like a cultural humanity thing. This is... The, operate, the anatomy of humanity and operational framework of humanity. So we're talking about something which is a law. It's an operational law. So we could call these the laws of humanity, if you will. Um, and these are laws that have been prescribed by God and the design for humanity that He originally created humanity with. Some of these um, things we'll be discussing tonight will probably be challenging to uh, to both understand and uh, agree with, perhaps the question that we face is not whether they're valid, but what, we will, what will we do with the information that we have presented to us. Um, we will probably be and possibly look, be looking at a second part to this operational framework um, for clarification and for those who may or may not um, have made it tonight. So with all that said, uh, let me begin by saying that this again is not a study on anthropology or civilizations, but is a part of the anatomy of humanity according to scripture, and this side study um, builds off of what we've already studied. So in order to understand that, let's give a brief summary uh, regarding the anatomy of humanity according to scripture that we have studied so far. And that is as follows. Number one, God originally created man and woman out of nothing. That's Genesis 1.27, where means to create out of nothing. Number two, God then formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, plural. Genesis 2.7 seven. Yatzar and Asa being the two um, create and make verbs there. Yatzar means to fashion out of existing materials, and saw means to create out of existing materials. Number three, scripture clearly identifies two invisible attributes of man. The soul, found in 1 Corinthians 2.14, one of, one of the many references to the soul. Um, we have the word in English translated there from sukios, which means soulful or soulish. Uh, into natural. So the understanding is that the natural man cannot understand the things of God from 1 Corinthians 2.14. What it really says is the soulful man, or the man operating from the soul, cannot understand the things of God. Uh, we also have the second part of that, Spirit, from John 3, 5 to 6, uh, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, That which is born of water is water, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and pneuma being the word we get for spirit there as well. Notice the capital Spirit and the lowercase spirit in John uh, that past that portion of the verse, I believe, comes from verse 6, uh, where it says, born of the Spirit is Spirit. You've got two different concepts there. The, the concept is that we are begotten from the Spirit. Our human spirit is begotten from the Holy Spirit. So anytime you see the Spirit when it's uppercase, it's usually a reference to the Holy Spirit. There are places in Scripture where we have an, a, a capitalized Spirit, where the emphasis is actually on the human spirit. But here's something that, it, that, that should help in those situations. Anytime the human spirit is in view or emphasized, the Holy Spirit isn't far behind. They work together. So when the Holy Spirit's emphasized, it's con- he's connecting with our human spirit or the, in, the other person's human spirit in the passage. So whether we're talking about human spirit or Holy Spirit, they're both in play. Okay? Unless we're talking about the Holy Spirit's work towards a miracle or that kind of a thing, a non-believer in that sense. So don't, don't fret too much about the uppercase, lowercase concepts. Um, there are often times where we have the concept of like an evil spirit. Um, that's just talking about a spiritual being, something that is designed and created by God as a spiritual th- thing. Um, usually it's a reference to angels, whether fallen or um, still those who are in obedience. So, scripture identifies those two invisible attributes of man the soul and the spirit. And the visible attribute being the body. Number four, in breathing into man the breath of lives, God brought to life the soul of man and the spirit of man, both simultaneously through the breath of lives. It comes from the Hebrew phrase that we understand that with the plural there, that there's more than one breath and not more than three. There are two lives being breathed. Number five, at the fall of man, the spirit of man died instantly, as promised by God in Genesis 216 to 17, when he said, dying instantan- or dying instantly, you will die at a point in time in the future. That's the phrase we discovered was literally translated from the Hebrew uh, where it says you will surely die in English. That's the phrase I would write in my margin for future reference. At the fall of man, the body and soul of man were promised separation and physical death. Again, Genesis 2.16, that's the future death. So the spirit dies instantly. The, fu- the future death referenced in Genesis 2.16-17 is the separation of the body from the soul. So then in line 7... Humanity was originally designed trichotomous, that is, with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Within each of these three components of humanity, God has placed subcomponents, which assist in the operation of humanity. Within the body, we've got the musculoskeletal system, brain matter, sensory receptors, organ systems, etc. That list just keeps going on and on. We've got whole anatomy books, college classes, um, degrees, where we can study this for the rest of our lives. That's how intricate this system that God has created is to house our soul and spirit is. Within the soul, we can identify the mentality of the individual, the emotion of the individual, the individual's conscience, volition, and the ability for self-awareness or self-consciousness. So we have those five things within the soul. The spirit of man houses spiritual consciousness, that's spiritual awareness, the divine communication system, and the divine power system. These are three of what I am assuming are many more uh, three of the many things that we have in our spirit, these were three that I could easily identify uh, without going into too much trouble. The divine communication system, we would identify as our communication with God through prayer and our proper relationship with him. The divine power system comes from understanding that God has given us, through the Holy Spirit, his divine power. The same power that he had that raised Christ from the dead we have living within us and operating within us and is able for us, independent of God, uh, with the exception that we're in our, our relationship with God, um, to be used. So we can perform the action to use God's power in the right refra- framework of our relationship with God. <clears throat> spiritual consciousness, again, is just spiritual awareness. So all of these, uh, these three things are, are a short list of the many things that the, spirit, the human spirit possesses um, and that God has designed within that structure to assist in the operation of humanity. Each of these components of humanity and subcomponents of humanity has specific functions within God's original design and purpose for man. That purpose, again, is to glorify God. As a result, each of the components of humanity possesses the potential to accomplish this objective. The body alone can glorify God, the soul alone can glorify God, and the spirit alone can glorify God. We mentioned the intricacy of the body. I don't know how someone can study the body, even from a scientific mindset, and not see a creator through that. It is designed to glorify God. God. The only way I can possibly see that they would be able to reject that there was a creator is if they have a personal bias against it, um, such as Darwin when he produced his um, Origin of Species and Treatise of Unevolution. Okay, so how then is the objective of glorifying God accomplished? Simply put, each component, the body, soul, and spirit, and subcomponent within them operates from an operational framework which God designed. In other words, there is a master framework or master command center that works and operates within humanity. This operational framework controls the actions of the body, the soul, and the spirit of man. This is more readily understood using the parallel example that the central nervous system is the controlling center for the body. In such a way, the operational framework of humanity is the controlling center for the body, soul, and spirit. The central nervous system, as a side note then, would be a part within the framework of the operational framework because it controls the body. What we're trying to uh, understand there and and get across there is that the operational framework operates in the same way the central nervous body, the central nervous system does towards the body, but the operational framework operates towards humanity. Operating humanity uh, as the trichotomous being that God designed it to be. (coughs) That's why we have the note that says this includes the central nervous system by default. The operational framework of humanity is made up of a number of components which assist the individual in operation however there is one predominant source of the individual's actions clearly identified in scripture so predominant that even the sin nature of humanity is subject to its control and direction that should be a huge statement right there the new american standard mentions this operational framework or this part of the operational framework the predominant one specifically in 806 locations for comparison, the word love occurs in 528 locations. The word Jesus occurs in 900 locations. It's amazing how many times this word is used and how little we understand what it means. The fact that it's used almost as many times as Jesus, just under 11, just under a 100 times as Jesus' name, is, should be pretty telling and more so than love. Love is probably the, the most taught on subject or topic from Scripture and, and not unrightfully so, or not wrongly so, I guess would be a proper way of terming that. But there's something that is being missed, and I, I'm going to harp on that because I don't think we can really love until we know how the operational framework of humanity works, because that's part of knowing how God designed us, and we can't love until we know God and understand what He has done. Verses such as Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Matthew 12.34, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Exodus 7.14 Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Anyone see the common denominator in these verses? Hopefully you flagged that word heart. These are three of the 800 and some odd, 806 I think we said, uh, references that the New American Standard translation makes. Uh, with the word heart in it, and these aren't just the ones where it's talking about where it, it says heart, but it really means like liver or something like that. This is where it, it says heart, and it means heart in the way that we're we're attempting to understand tonight. Should have wrote should have wrote heart, but I wrote, or liver, but I wrote heart. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's trust the Lord and, and identify that he put that in there for a reason and try to understand his concept. <laughs> Far be it from the translators to stop understanding. We could have had 900 just like Jesus. <laughs> According to Scripture, it is the heart of man which is the basis for his actions. It is the heart of man which is the predominant component in the operational framework of humanity. Jesus himself identified this as the case when he addressed his disciples in Matthew 15:15 15, 15 and following. The heart is not, reference in scripture is not a reference to the physical blood-pumping organ. That reference to that to the reference to the heart is to the center of life for humanity, but not the existence of life so much as the production of life. So it's the actions, not the abstract concept, that life is occurring because of the heart in Hebrew. I can't skip ahead. Let's listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15:15 15, 15 through 18. Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us. Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Matthew 5, or 15, 19 through 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. This is in response to the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples of eating uh, eating bread without washing their hands and thus being ceremonially unclean. Um, problem with their accusation was that they made the ceremony and God did not in the first place, so Jesus rebukes them for that. And then goes into this explanation in Matthew 15, 1-14, that it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but what comes out. And what comes out goes out through the mouth, and it comes out through the heart. Or it's the result of the heart. So the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of being ceremonially unclean because they ate bread without washing their hands in Matthew fifteen one 1-14. Jesus obliges Peter's request to explain the parable, and in doing so provides a necessary understanding of the heart being the source of man's actions. Throughout Scripture, especially in Biblical Hebrew, culturally, and also culturally and linguistically Greek as well, body parts were used to symbolize various parts of human life, or human soul and spirit life. For example, the gut would be the source of compassion. When you feel pity or compassion towards someone, where do we feel it? We feel it in our gut. Well, the Hebrews caught on to this concept, and they actually expressed it through there. Um, The kidneys, or the reins in in the King James Version, expressed emotion or feeling. In Job 16:13 we have Job writing about how God is doing to him and he says in the passage that God has uh, his, God's archers are all around him and he is and God is and their arrows have sliced him through the gut and the gall of his gut has spilled out. This is all symbolic about the pain that he is feeling. It's a literal metaphor. So while we can take the Bible literally, we understand that it is a metaphor that is being literally employed there through poetry to express how how emotional and how he was feeling in this time period when he was having um, Satan and company tear him apart the liver is something else and i forget which one right now so like for just for two examples the gut is compassion the kidneys is emotions or feeling um in the sense that we have like crying emotions and anger emotions but also like oh i feel like we should do this that kind of emotion too yeah, so that, those are what they represent. What's that? Your gumption comes from your kidneys. Yes, actually. And in fact, if you look at anatomically speaking, the adrenal glands are linked to your kidneys. So they pump adrenaline through your body, and I believe it has to actually process through your kidneys. It kind of makes sense. There's a lot to the this. These are the filters that filter the bad stuff out of the blood. So if you wanted to get something into the blood, the kidneys would be a bad place because all the blood yeah, now I'm not... So that would be a bad place to put something into the gland. Right. I'm not a, a scholar by any means on anatomy, but if I remember vaguely, as as vaguely <laughs> yeah, as I remember, I if I remember right, I think it, adrenal glands run through the kidneys rather than just they're attached to them. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone's in anatomy, huh? We get all of our anatomy questions. Hey, ask this. So I want a I want a list of all the parts of the body, and then a corresponding list of what they symbolize in scripture. And also where energetic code is I'll name. give you like a thousand points for that. That be all or a thousand points a page. Oh, a, a large majority. Doesn't have to be all. All right. So we we've seen clearly just with these two, but there's. So many other ones in Scripture as well that it just harmonizes so perfectly that they're representative of different functions and different expressions of humanity. Um, the heart of man is identified by Jesus as being the predominant component for the operational framework of humanity. So we see this because Jesus identifies that from the heart comes man's actions. He says this says this specifically in verse um, fifteen in chapter fifteen, verse eighteen. But look what he what he does with verse nineteen. He says, "For out of the heart." come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. Not murderers, but murders. Perhaps it's for this reason that God had Solomon write to guard the heart above all else in Proverbs 4. And yet in Jeremiah 17, 9 through 12, Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God himself when he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, Search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Notice it doesn't say I search the heart to see how the blood is flowing. No, it says I search the heart so that I can give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. The deeds that we make are the result of our heart. Our actions come from our heart. They don't come, well, they shouldn't come from our kidneys, and oftentimes they seem to. Well, if we can stop using our kidneys as our operational framework and start using our heart, the problem is within our heart. We've said, "Let's go use the kidneys." We'll get to that. only will make a little sense, a little more sense later. The word for heart in Koine Greek is "cardia." The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament has this to say in defining "cardia": With regard to meaning, the New Testament is dependent on Old Testament and Jewish Jewish usage. That means culturally and historically, "cardia" is not regarded as as in the Greek understanding, as an organ in the physiological sense and the logical and the location of mental and spiritual feeling. We said that kidneys were the feeling location. So in the Greek culture, the the heart was an organ, was viewed oftentimes as an organ, and this is we're talking about Greek prior to the writing of scripture. This isn't Koine Greek culture we're talking about, we're talking um, Alexander the Great's father here. Uh, well, and actually Alexander the in great time period as well. <clears throat> but cardia in that culture was not regarded um, as an organ in the physiological sense, as the blood pump, um, or the location of mental and spiritual feeling. So the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, Jewish usage, and the Greek culture all see it as the same way. It's all not going to be focusing on this concept. So through that, and that's found on the ED&T, edu- edu- Exegetical Dictionary in the New Testament page, 250 of Volume 2, if you want to go look it up and read the rest of it, because there's a bunch more information about it. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, a different dictionary, defines it in part by saying that the cardia comes to stand for the whole of the inner being of man in contrast to the external side. That's Volume 3, page 612. If you don't have one of those, you should get one. It's just awesome. Uh, Cardia comes to stand for the whole of the inner being of man. It represents the inner being of man, the entirety of the inner being of man. In other words, it's the source of man's actions. It is the source of man's character. It is the basis for evaluation of the inner man. It is the, it is the man's character in contrast to the external side of man, his actions, or his physical features. In other words, motives versus actions. Character versus appearance. Not that those are direct opposites. The usage of, usage of cardia expresses the heart of man to be the house of man's normal and standard operational protocols. In other words, the norms and stands of an individual's actions are stored in the card norms and norms and standards. <laughs> I have never had that trouble before. In other words, the norms and stands. No, the norms and standards of an individual's actions. Are stored in his cardia. Toad's fresh. Toad's fresh, yeah totally, totes. So what we're saying there is that we all have normal operational procedures, protocols. When this happens we do this. Someone wakes us up first thing in the morning and starts yelling a bunch of stuff us. what are we gonna hmm. do? We're either gonna get really mad or be really confused. Probably a little <laughs> bit of both, okay? Now if you're a man you'll understand the get really mad part. Your brain's not awake yet, you're not functioning. These are all things that control our body, control our actions. Okay. So there are some things that like the central nervous system controls parts of our body that we don't really have much say over as far as what it does. We still have the direction to say, hey I'm gonna reach my hand out and do this. You guys are gonna start laughing in a little bit because this is gonna get old. I don't even know what I'm doing here. (laughs) But my central nervous system is what's controlling that action I had the impetus to do it, petting a unicorn it looks like, no it is not a dance move, I wouldn't even attempt that in front of you guys, because my, my heart says not to, so the normal and standard operational procedures that we have and protocols we have are, are stored in our heart, it is the house of these things, um, we'll find that that is what our, where our beliefs are stored. Our beliefs are our norms and standards. What we believe determines what we do. What we believe resides in our heart. They are our norms and standards for operation. By nature the cardia is programmable. However, do not confuse cardia with man's conscience, which is itself programmable. The heart of man and the conscience of man are two different things. The conscience of man houses the moral and ethical understanding of man. What is right? What is wrong? The cardia houses the normal operational protocols for man, so the conscience is data-oriented, the cardia is operational-oriented. The conscience of man houses the moral and ethical understanding of man, the cardia houses the normal operational protocols for man. Very related. The conscience resides within the cardia. Which is well, what we're going to get to in a little the bit. Dave, but it's, it's, it's seen. They're linked. Yeah. And whether... They're almost inseparable. I, I shouldn't say the conscience is within the cardia. The cardia trumps the conscience. 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 Goodness <laughs> gracious. <laughs> See what I mean about scattered brain? <laughs> the, cardia, the cardia overrides the conscience. But they are definitely linked. We, bel- we do things because we think they're right or wrong. But what we do doesn't always equate to what's right or wrong. OK, so it's, I guess it's uh, not reciprocal between the two, but it's recognized between the two. Like the conscience is kind of tool I can go for that, yeah. Or is uh, a method by which the heart The conscience and the cardia are linked together, but they are not in complete agreement at all times. They function independent of each other. What would be an example of, of the heart and the conscience functioning separately? Well, say you believe it's wrong. or Your conscience tells you it's wrong to steal, but you steal. Okay. Your conscience says this is wrong. Your heart says, I'm going to do this. It's this my normal operational protocol. Okay. In this yeah. situation where that thing is there, I want it, I'm going to take it. So you know it's wrong what you do anyway. Okay. Okay. This is where we get the difference between conviction and belief. Conviction is towards the conscience. Belief is towards the heart. Belief stems our actions. Conviction stems our passion towards something. So from our, conviction, or from our conscience, we get conviction. From our heart, we get action. I have no idea what that sound was. But I'm convicted to move on. When the when the word heart appears in the New Testament and the Old Testament alike, it is almost always referencing this concept of the norms and standards of an individual and not the blood pump. I don't know of any case that actually does reference a blood pump. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. Even in the poetry, what ripped out his heart? Ripped out his heart? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> what about the story where he just stabs the guy in the heart? You talking about Ehud? It doesn't stab him in the heart, it's stabs him in the stomach, yeah. right? It's the kidneys. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah, and I've got no compassion for you, so I'm going to take your compassion away. Yeah. So I, I'm not saying that the blood pump usage isn't there at all. I'm just saying I don't think I've ever seen it. I can't remember seeing it. Uh, I could have gone through all 806 examples to find that, but I didn't feel like it was worth the time especially when I was trying to catch up. So if you want to get a thousand points, you can do that on your own, submit a five page paper at the end of the term. Thank you very much. Go for it. By nature, the... oh, we already did this one. In order to have norms and standards in one's heart, and Jamin, you, hint- you were getting to this point, an individual must place dependency upon something. In other words, we have to have data in order to believe something. As humans, we automatically evaluate that which we perceive through our senses and intellect that process occurs in order to identify the value of what has been perceived. I used to stumble all over the, the, that sentence of, that process occurs in order to identify the worth, the objective, the desire, the pleasure, whatever, of what has been perceived. But really what it comes down to is the value we place in something. And we'll explain that as we get through the process of what actually occurs during the data evaluation principle. Symbolically, as seen through Jesus' parable, this process is attributed to the mouth, which operates as the input and output device for humanity. So our, our perception, what we perceive, comes through our senses. This is what, in the parable that Jesus is using, is the reference towards the mouth, is what's coming in and out of man. What comes in man doesn't necessarily come right back out of man. And In fact, Jesus tells the, the Pharisees in Matthew 15:1 through 14 that what goes into the man passes through the esophagus down to the stomach and then is eliminated. But what comes out of the man defiles him, and he says that what comes out of man comes from the from the mouth, or he says that what comes out of the mouth of man comes from the heart. Now, look also at what Jesus declares to Peter: Do you not understand that everything that goes in the mouth passes into into the stomach and is eliminated? The mouth symbolizes the input and output component to the operational framework of humanity. What we see, hear, smell, touch, and taste through our sensory perception is how we put things into our bodies. But the things we perceive are not what defile us. What defiles us comes from the heart. Go ahead. Ask that question in about ten more minutes. And I was expecting it, by the way. No, you're good. But the things, verse 18... But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Uh, this just answers your question right there, too, for the record. But Some contest that Jesus is merely speaking about the words which we speak about others, such as the Pharisees, who the, the disciples said, hey, the Pharisees were a little offended by that, and Jesus said, hey, the let the him blind, let them go. Don't even worry about it. So some say that because of that, that Jesus is speaking about the words which we speak about others um, as being able to defile us and being those things which defile us, which... Our words can defile us because they come from our heart. However, Jesus extends his list of defilements not just to words but to actions such as thefts, false witness, fornications, murders, etc. His list clearly is not focused on just things that we say. In fact, I think besides the false witness, the slanderer, um, and I think there's one more in there that we can really link towards the tongue or the mouth uh, as word, coming from words specifically. The tongue has its own issue in James, and hopefully when we get back to that book, after a couple of these side studies, we'll, we'll get to that point too. But all these things, all these defilements proceed from the heart of man. They get to the heart through the mouth, and they come out of the heart through, they come out of man through the mouth, from the heart. Make sense? It's got that input-output concept to it. Question? No, I okay. All right, that leads us to the data evaluation principle, which we have seen before, but I'm not sure if, actually I think the last time we discussed this, you both were not here, so this, this may be new, it may not be, if it's not, I'm sorry, if it is, I'm sorry too. The data evaluation principle is not a protocol, which can be implemented volitionally or removed volitionally from, it, from operation. It is itself an operational law under which all humans operate. Right now you are operating under this law try to prove it wrong good luck as such it is as such a law it is another component of the operational framework of humanity in other words all humans no matter whether they're believer jew gentile whatever they operate under this concept this is one of the laws of human operation it is through the data evaluation principle that the heart is programmed Here's a summary of the data evaluation principle. I've got a diagram to come up on the next one, so bear with the technical terms when we get there. Number one, all data which is perceived through the senses, taste, touch, sight, hearing, smell, enters into the parietal lobe of the brain. This is what connects our all the nerve endings that we have in our fingers and everything, it goes right through the spinal column up and into the parietal lobe of the brain, uh, which is that purple one there. So you can see it's perfectly primed to receive all of our sensory perception um, coming from the spinal column and from our central nervous system. Pretty impressive. Number two, once in the parietal lobe, it is transferred to the left frontal lobe and is evaluated by a number of examinations, including worldview, intellect, mindset, and desire. If you have bias, put it in there, too. Okay. In fact, worldview, people say, is bias. Not necessarily. More of a filter. That's an it's argument. That's an argument that can go into the wee hours of the so once once the information's gone to the parietal lobe, that purple one, it moves towards the front, to the frontal lobes. There's two of them. We got a right right lobe of the brain and a left lobe of the brain. In the left frontal lobe, we evaluate things. In the right frontal lobe, we store the things for action. So look to the heart to be in the right frontal lobe in the future here. I'm trying to figure out which way I'm going. <laughs> no, I was just imagining it biologically. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> I did that too.
0: The purpose of this evaluation is to, determine, is to determine the value of the data. So when we get things in our left frontal lobe, we're trying to determine its value. Sometimes we place value on different things. Something being pleasurable or enjoyable uh, versus being worth something to us. Or in some degree, all value is worth something to us, even the pleasure, pleasurable and enjoyable things. So it may be that we consciously object to morally to something that we enjoy or want but in our evaluation we either have to accept it or reject accept or reject the value that that item has whether it's seemingly valuable I meaning really worthless and we just place value upon it because we want it or it in is inherently valuable so the purpose of our evaluation in the left frontal lobe is to determine the value of the data what we value goes into our heart and that's what we're getting at all data everything we perceive is stored in the brain Yet the data which is deemed valuable enough to depend upon for operation is stored in the right frontal lobe. In other words, after evaluation in the left frontal lobe, that which is deemed worthless or unnecessary is stored for later recall. We never lose what we've perceived. We may not recall it, but we never lose it. It is imprinted in our brain and stuck there. However, that which is valuable or deemed dependable is transferred from the left frontal lobe to the right frontal lobe. It's in the right frontal lobe that an individual's operational norms and standards reside. In other words, your beliefs exist and sit right here in the right frontal lobe of your brain. You evaluate on the left, bring it into your right. Therefore, we understand through science and the Koine Greek usage of cardia, along with the Old Testament symbolic models, that the right frontal lobe is the equivalent to Scripture's reference to the heart. So when you read heart in Scripture, we're talking about the right frontal lobe, the location, the house of your norms and standards. That's what we're supposed to guard, according to Proverbs four twenty-three. Such being the case, it is logical that the heart of man oh, look, should be guarded as the source from which life exudes. It's amazing how that kind of just happens. The heart of man is symbolic of the norms and standards which man has deemed valuable and dependable for operational protocol. When we went through uh, verse 5 of James chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we... Actually, it was just 5. We said that if anyone lacks wisdom, he's to ask God. And that wisdom we said was knowing how to apply what you've learned and studied to a situation. So it's academic knowledge of something you've already studied, but knowing how to apply it or depend upon it in your situation. That was the wisdom we were supposed to ask for. We that's when we brought in the concept of the data evaluation principle: that we analyze what we perceive, we value it or disvalue it, and we locate it either in our brain for memory recall or we put it into our right frontal lobe for belief and behavioral recall. Every action volitionally taken comes from the heart of man as programmed by his norms and standards. Now I put that word volitionally taken because I didn't want to put consciously taken because our subconscious actions are the result of our heart as well. We may not have programmed our heart to tell our our body or to uh, to tell us to do something yet, so it may just be subconscious. We may not even thought about it, but we have a standard that we operate from. Whether we've thought about it or not, so technically the the volitional tag there, adverb there, is the only thing that really works. Every action volitionally taken comes from the heart of man as programmed by his norms and standard. Whether you're aware that it's sin, whether you're aware that it's right, whether you're aware that it's pleasurable or not, every action is volitionally taken and comes from the heart of man, which you've programmed through data evaluation. It is necessary, then, to program the heart with norms and standards that are in harmony with God's world system. This is where Romans 12, 1-2 parallels start coming in if you haven't caught that yet. Understand the data evaluation principle and the concept that faith means to place complete dependency upon something allows believers the necessary mechanics which are needed to begin programming their heart and therefore their actions with the righteous norms and standards of God. This is a part of the spiritual growth model prescribed by God. We focus today, in today's churches, on changing the, the actions. But what we don't teach is how to do that. And so we end up banging our head against the wall, for the most part, and teaching, uh, teaching church members, and not, I'm not talking about Wiley here so much, um, just the church as a, and probably a United States national corporate body at this point. We teach our congregational members, you know, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to love. Put others first. We don't teach them the mechanics of how. Well, How do you love someone if you value yourself more than them? You're not going to do it. You're going to force yourself, and it's not going to be love then. You've got this, this process that's being taught that is what I call shopping cart theology. It's like going to a grocery store and saying, okay, we need more love. You need more love? Okay, grab love. You need more um, service or servant's heart? You grab that servant's heart off the shelf. You grab all these things and add them to yourself. No, no, no. What you have to do is remove the norms and standards that you have that keep you from loving. Because the result and the truth is that when you have your norms and standards and and you say this is what I believe or what you think you believe and you put them up against your beliefs or your actions, if they don't match perfectly, then you're not actually believing or depending upon what you say you do. And that's where you get the concept, concept of the conscience versus the heart. Conscience, we can believe morally that stealing is wrong and we can find ourselves stealing. But until we match up our norms and standards and take an inventory of our actions against our norms and standards or what we believe, we're not going to actually, or what we think we believe, we're not going to actually understand why we do what we do. If you want to know why you do what you do, you mix this with your sin nature, the sin nature and the anatomy of your sin nature, and you'll understand and unlock the key to spiritual growth here. You'll start to begin to understand how God has designed us to spiritually mature. It's not just, okay, be more loving. Yeah, but how? Well, if you're selfish, you've got to remove the selfishness. And to some degree, we get that kind of teaching on a very basic level. But it's a whole lot easier when you realize that Scripture talks about the heart being the operational norms and standards, the location for them. And when you realize that, hey, if I'm treating this person badly, or if I have a bad attitude, it's because I've got a belief or something that I've valued that is wrong. So I need to go back and evaluate what I've given value and given credence and Get rid of it and replace it with something that God says is valuable. So this is this is basic to understanding spiritual growth, the spiritual growth model prescribed by God. Um, if you're struggling with something specifically that you just can't seem to get past, don't worry about what that thing is. Worry about why you do that thing and why you believe that it's okay, because you do. You may know it's wrong. But knowing something's wrong and believing something's wrong doesn't equate. They're not the same thing. It's the conscience versus the heart. The reason we do things we know we're not supposed to is because we place value in something that is wrong. In summary, every action you make comes from your heart, the house of your norms and standards of operational protocols, what you believe. If you say you believe something and it's not producing an action in your your life, you don't believe it. You think you do, but you don't. You know it. Knowledge plus faith, knowledge complete, plus dependency upon that knowledge produces action. We brought that equation up, I think, once before. This is the whole concept in James of the theological theme that we're going through right now, that faith, um, the true spirituality is faith in action. What is faith? A complete dependency. If you're dependent upon something, it must produce an action. Depend upon knowledge, it produces the action. We've learned tonight that the heart is your... The house of your norms and standards of what you actually believe. All beliefs come from your actions. Therefore, we should know that if our actions don't line up with what we what we think or know to be right or wrong, then we don't actually believe something to be right or wrong, and we're not depending upon that knowledge of it, or we're placing some sort of value on it that is incorrect. We sin because we place value on things. And pseudo value, I guess, is really what I'm trying to get at. Yes, Robin. I like that um, really harmonizes with our verse from last week about reception because like if you like you can want to do something and think you believe it but like you aren't so, um, I don't know. so yeah. yeah no it, it totally harmonizes with the concept when when James one sixteen where James tells the diaspora to stop being deceived because that's what it is we're replacing we're false value on something we're saying this is enjoyable, this is consumable, this is something that I want that I shouldn't have, but I, and I know that, but I want it, and so there's value to it. But there's really, there's no value to it. This is also why if you look at um, scripture, and I've mentioned this before, and someday hopefully we can get to a study on it. If you look at scripture that once a believer becomes a believer, sin starts being viewed according to God's world system as valuable or worthless, not as right or wrong. So when we confess our sin, what we end up doing is saying, through our evaluation process of what we've believed and what actually produced, say we know it's wrong to steal, but we didn't depend upon that knowledge, or we didn't place value in that knowledge, so we stole. What we do is we say, stealing is worthless. We're now giving it the value it actually has of nothing, of no value. And we're saying that not stealing then has value, and we're replacing that. now when we depend upon that, when it means something, it's worth something to us, and so we depend upon it. It changes our action. The instant we stop depending upon it, we'll go back to stealing. Which is why it's not an off thing. Because the reason we dep- stop depending upon it is because we find some value to it. Usually because we like it or we want it. So we're very much deceived. But if we understand how to pull our norms and standards out and replace them with what God says about something like like love. Our world says love. I, when, they, when the world says I love you, they're saying I like what you do for me. I like, I like the way that my body responds to yours, that my attitude responds to yours, that all these things. But God says, no, that person has value because they're created being to glorify me, not because of their actions or their attitude or their humor or any of that stuff. So love is not received to be given. It is given to be received. Does that make any sense? Robin? Are our, our, like, automatic you learn everything, but like, you like you perceive your data, but like, feel like, I guess this would just go with the sin nature. My natural tendency is to like depend on the wrong things. <laughs> is that because of the sin nature, and is it is it like that for everyone? And so you have to program against that always, or will sometimes you like automatically do the right thing, or is it that just because you programmed it that way? Romans twelve one says. Stop being conformed to this world, right. but be transformed by the renewing so of your mind. We're automatically conformed to it. We are automatically conformed to the world. If we can't understand the things of God yeah. until we accept Christ as our Savior, because we don't have a Spirit, we're then we are automatically conformed. So, at the point in which you accept Christ, that's the point in which you have the possibility to stop completely being conformed to the world. The probability is you'll complete, you'll still be continue, you'll still be in that process of being conformed to the world and transformed, both on and off. Um, so, yes, it's a result of sin nature going unchecked with data perceived such it such a, oh, I don't want to give an example. Sorry. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, there's another part to that question that I'm not sure they got to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you said, so well, you automatically choose the right theory. thing. No, no. Not, not, not really. It doesn't really work that way. Especially if you're not having accepted Christ okay. because you have to be taught the right thing. Now you may take the right thing the first time around if you're in fellowship if you're saved in fellowship and god says hey this action is wrong and you okay i'll take that and that would be one of those things we talked about earlier with um, subconscious action that we haven't evaluated data so much consciously to perceive or or to bring in to our heart but that we've actually just either done it without knowing or we're just pre-programmed that way so most likely not. If you're in fellowship, the possibility to change it on the first go go-around is there. Yeah. Now what happens, and we, we talk about these things called wheel tracks, I think we did last week too. What happens is that say you're you want a candy bar and you know stealing's wrong and you're depending upon that knowledge that stealing is wrong and you've placed value upon that and you say, God says that this is worthless, so I don't give it any value. But then you go in the grocery store and you're sitting there and there's a candy bar laying right next to the little sliding door the automatic door someone dropped it or someone tried to steal it and didn't make it they shot him and he's somewhere else and that cannon bar is just sitting there and no one is around what's going to happen is the process we identify in james chapter 1 14 and 15 that we're going to start our norms and standards are going to start being eroded a little bit here they're going to start being attacked and we're going to start in that deceptive dance towards oh i know i should i know it's does not value but I'm sure that tastes pretty good right now, and we start going through that process. And when we consent volitionally, that's that, that moment of conception we talk about is when we place value on on that object, or value on that action, so that we move towards it then, and our lust takes it toward takes us toward it then. What's that wrong? There's value on the result of that action? Or yeah, or value on the result of that action, definitely. Um, there's another part to that example, but think we lost it. So you may know that stealing bar is wrong. You may enter into the dance. You may depend upon it, but once you enter into that dance, you have to firm up through your conscience the conviction you have on what you actually believe. So the conscience and the conviction and the the conscience and the (laughs) heart work together or can work together and I think are designed to work together in that capacity. Um, In our summary, line two, what is in the heart has been deemed valuable and dependable. It's kind of difficult to express that concept in just the word valuable and just the word dependable. But the concept exists that when we place weight in, on something or we say, Hey, I can depend upon that. And then we do depend upon that. That's where we've given it value. So we depend upon what we find valuable, whether it's fake value, or real authentic value right that's that's a type of value yeah this will be pleasant i like the result of this um i can spend my money on this whatever anything sinful we place value on and otherwise we wouldn't do it we depend upon upon some some sort of value for it number three if any actions are found to be to be missing the mark to be sin they are to be reprogrammed through renovating the worthless norm or standard and replacing it with a valuable norm or standard. So if we find that our actions are sinful, we need to find the worthless norm or standard that we have given value, wrongly so, and replace it with a valuable norm or standard, one that God has, has defined as saying this is what value is. This is what you should, how you should see this. This is how you should view this. Finally, it was earlier stated that the conscience of man and the heart of man are both programmable, but are not the same things according to Scripture. Because of this truth, humanity can find something morally and ethically reprehensible, and yet discover that that morally and ethically reprehensible act is a part of their actions inventory. What I mean by actions inventory is if you catalog your list of actions today, last week, the last year, your whole life, you will find morally and ethically reprehensible actions that you knew were wrong, and that you or either feel guilty about or feel disappointed about or feel some sort of something about. Your inventory of your actions reveals what you believe. Your conscience reveals what you know is right or know is wrong. So you need to evaluate things under whether it's got real genuine value, whether it's right or whether it's wrong or whether it's worthless. There's basically those four four criteria. Real genuine value and right are basically the same criteria, just two different ways of saying it for two different situations. Um, Worthless and knowing something is wrong, same thing. So we evaluate things, we evaluate data under those two, two basic concepts, that it's either valuable and right or worthless and wrong. When we understand God's mindset towards that, that what is valuable is what's righteous and what is worthless is what's unrighteous, then we start to be able to shake these things off. And this is part of the process of working together with God for Him to purify us and bring these, take these things out of us. This is part of our approach. In these moments when we find ourselves, our actions being morally or ethically reprehensible, and typically following, or the imme- typically immediately following the conscience, identif- conscious identification of sin, the believer oftentimes finds himself feeling guilty and worthless. The source of this guilt is not God nor Satan and company. Satan and company will come into this later and give you guilt and and beat you up about it later. The guilt does not come from God. This guilt comes from the realization that an individual has not lived up to his own moral and ethical standard in his actions. That is to say, his heart has not agreed or harmonized with his conscience, and as a result, he feels badly for it. Now, with guilt, we're not talking about just, you know, God, I feel bad that I did that. I shouldn't have done that. That kind of bad. We're talking about the guilt that drives a believer into the depressive state and pity party and self loathing and all this kind of thing that, that as humans, we fall victim to because we have a conscience that says this is wrong and yet we have action that says, action inventory that says we did this. So we look at them, we say, Ooh, that's wrong and I did it. I'm a terrible person. Guilt in the believer's life is not sent from God to bring the believer back to a right standing relationship with him. No, God uses the Holy Spirit to convict us. Again, Convicting us through that conscience. We're supposed to let God program our conscience and program our heart. So God uses the Holy Spirit to convict us towards repentance, not guilt us towards pity parties, self-loathing, and depressive tendencies. God doesn't even guilt us into confession. We do that ourselves. We should not feel guilty about sin. We should feel remorse and feel that we need to repent. But guilt is not a concept for a believer. The grace of God declares believers to be guilt-free in his eyes. The believer's heart should agree with that concept. To feel guilty when your sin has had an innocent man's life as its payment is to slap like, slap Calvary in the face. Christ has paid the price. We should not feel guilty. We should be sorry for what we've done. We should recognize that it's worthless, and we should adapt. If we really want to reflect well and value the cross and honor Christ's work on the cross, we should stop feeling pity parties. We should stop our self-loathing parties. And our depressive tendencies, and recognize that we are not guilty in God's eyes. He's declared us blameless. He's declared us holy. But those actions we did were worthless, and we should not do them. So, oh, sorry, so go ahead. Do, you, do you define guilt as pity party, self guilt, and depressive tendencies? Uh, in the predominant sense, yes. Okay. Guilt and conviction a are a tough line to, to fit. Um, feeling sorry for an action it doesn't necessarily mean you're feeling guilty about it. Okay. Synonyms and the pity party and self-loathing versus repentance as how you respond to that. Or you want to call it. So one, one is the two. feeling guilty or feeling remorseful, and then you respond appropriately to that feeling and are reconciled for your wrongs, or you respond inappropriate and you start yourself loathing. I agree. Nice, you're using like remorse and guilt is a different concept. Right. And And, and really, conviction and guilt is different concepts, because when I'm using guilt, I'm using the sense that someone will look at what they've done and say, and say because of their actions that they have no value now. So it's that pity party, self-loathing concept um, of oh, I feel so guilty, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. That kind of guilt versus (laughs) that's that's not a part of God's standard. I'm guilty of sin. I'll confess it and move on. Not the judicious guilt concept. So. to not back and forth with it. right so in other words I agree okay. with what you said about there's an inappropriate and appropriate response right. to guilt um, and the pity parties, is the self-loathing and depressive tendencies are definitely um, inappropriate responses I mean, okay. because they focus on you rather than right. on, on glorifying God so definitely yes but at the same time guilt is never from God to a believer at all God has not found any guilt any believer guilty of sin and that goes back to the positional truth concept. When we commit sin, it's charged to Christ. He's the guilty party for our sin. We can't have him be the guilty party and us be the guilty party. So I, I agree, but it doesn't mean that we're not guilty, or it doesn't mean that we are guilty. I guess is what I'm saying. So, but you're using, you're know, defining guilty. I guess I guess I just I was operating under a different, uh, a different definition of guilt. So we God would convict us of wrongs. Definitely. Kind of say, okay. So it, yeah. Your your remorse and my remorse would be like my guilt and my convict, or your your guilt and remorse would be like my guilt and my convict. The the remorse would be the the sorrow for having done something you knew was wrong, and the the sadness towards that, not the I'm such a terrible person because I did this wrong kind of thing, not the feeling guilty that, oftentimes. Snowballs inappropriately into those things, pity parties. Whereas conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, saying, "This is the law. This is what God has set up as right. You didn't do that. This needs to be taken. You need to take care of this and get back in fellowship." The grace of God declares believers to be guilt free in His eyes. Again, holy and blameless, according to Ephesians uh, one three through four. For those who are in Christ, the believer's heart should be should agree with that concept. In other words, your norms and standards should agree with that concept. With the grace of God declaring believers to be guilt-free in his eyes, the believer's heart should agree with the grace provision of God, which found Christ guilty at Calvary, except his own actions as worthless towards the spiritual maturation and ultimate objective of a spiritual design and purpose, which again is to glorify God. So rather than feeling guilty in the sense of the pity party, self-loathing, such a terrible person concept, the believer's heart should agree with with what God provided, the fact that Christ is the guilty party, he's paid the price, our sin was attributed to him, so much so that God had God the Father and God the Holy Spirit actually turned their back upon him when he was on the cross because they could not view sin on him and in doing so by agreeing with that what God did on, with Christ at Calvary except that your actions were worthless again the emphasis there not being right or wrong but being worthless meaning having no value um, towards spiritual growth and ultimate objective being to glorify God to that end, God in his grace has provided the believer's confession, as previously studied in 1 John 1-9, for a restoration of fellowship. As well as, as, established, as well as established through his word, the mechanics necessary to reprogram both man's conscience and heart with God's righteous norms and standards. Go and sin no more, in the words of Jesus. The way we do that is through evaluating our actions. Lining them up with what we know God has said is right or wrong, and finding out why they don't match. When we find out why they don't match, we will either at that point have to choose to uh, remove that which is erroneous, has a value erroneously placed on it, and replace it with something that actually has value that God identifies. Not too terrible.